Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, I'll speak with the CEO from one of the four groups being investigated by the Secretary of State's office. We still haven't been contacted by the Secretary of State or their investigators. And so this is nothing more than a press conference and an attempt to traffic in disinformation and spread Republican fan fiction. But first, speaking of elections, Georgia counties are working to finish another recount of the general election results by tonight's deadline, just before midnight. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger gave an update earlier today. We have had about 110 counties that have finished their work. In our continuing conversations with the counties, we anticipate all of them will make our midnight deadline. We'll be putting up the reporting site up at 2 p.m. today. We have seen no substantial changes to the results from any counties so far. Now, Secretary Raffensperger is also standing by statements made yesterday from Gabriel Sterling. He's a voting implementation manager for the office, and he called for an end to threats of violence against election workers. This is elections. This is the backbone of democracy. And all of you who have not said a damn word are complicit in this. It's too much. Yes, fight for every legal vote. Go through your due process. We encourage you. Use your First Amendment. That's fine. Death threats, physical threats, intimidation. It's too much. Sterling said a Gwinnett County voting machine technician is facing death threats after online posts claim he manipulated election data. The worker, a man in his 20s, reportedly found a noose outside the door of his home. It's being reported an accompanying note cited the technician should be, quote, hung for treason, close quote, for his role in the election. In other news, former Atlanta City Councilmember Kwanzaa Hall will finish the remainder of the late Congressman John Lewis's term. Hall's term will be brief. That's because Congresswoman-elect Nakima Williams will take over the seat in January after winning in the November election. And finally, health care workers and nursing home residents should be first in line to receive a vaccine once it's available. A panel of health experts convened by the Atlanta-based Centers for Disease Control and Prevention voted 13 to 1 about this yesterday. Experts say a potential vaccine will probably not become widely available in the U.S. until the spring. Meanwhile, in Georgia, at the time of this broadcast, 424,929 COVID-19 cases have been confirmed here in the state. 35,063 have been hospitalized. And of those, 6,536 are considered ICU admissions. Now, since the state began recording these numbers back in March, 8,798 deaths have been confirmed. And as always, we get our information from the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, just moments away, I'll speak with Georgia's Department of Labor Commissioner, Mark Butler. This is Closer Look.
Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. October was a pretty good month for Georgia's workforce. According to the Georgia Department of Labor, October's unemployment rate dropped for all metropolitan areas and counties across Georgia. And according to the department, some of these areas were reporting rates that compare with pre-pandemic unemployment rates. So that's some welcome news considering the record number of unemployment claims and rates this year and what a year it's been for the Labor Department. Joining me now is Georgia's Labor Commissioner, Mark Butler. Welcome back to the program. Well, thanks for having me on. I recall our first conversation regarding the pandemic in your department. That was back, I think, on March 17th. You were optimistic that the state could weather this pandemic storm, but here we are in November. So, Commissioner, how would you assess what you all have been able to do in terms of providing not just unemployment benefit claims, but in general, the services for those seeking, you know, employment? How do you sum up from March to now? Well, it's been a tremendous challenge that I don't think that most people can kind of grasp of what my employees have had to deal with. You go back and look at what was passed in the CARES Act. Mm -hmm. Basically, when you're talking about financial relief, 90% of the responsibility of all the different programs were actually put on Department of Labor's around the nation. And a lot of the things we've been asked to do are things that did not exist before March. They're brand new, extremely complicated programs. It's been a tremendous challenge Mm -hmm. for us to have to kind of deal with, but they have met that challenge and it's not been without, you know, a lot of sacrifices. You know, a lot of my employees were used to working maybe, you know, for, you know, Uh, five days a week, and they've been on a a seven-day-a-week schedule since March. A lot of them are working 10 to 12 hours a day. And the reason for that is, is, you know, like a lot of companies during the pandemic, hiring has been a massive challenge. And even though we have added uh, personnel and also a lot of temp workers, it has been a tremendous challenge to do that. And so, you know, a lot of sacrifices made, and, and there's been a lot of, uh, we, we've had a lot of, you know, a lot of sickness also in the department, especially here lately. For some mm-hmm. reason, we've had a, a tremendous increase in individuals getting COVID in the department, and so we've had to take some additional steps on that. And we've even had some people pass away due to complications from COVID that work here and other mm-hmm. health issues. So, you know, we've had a, a tremendous amount of challenges, and a lot of people see a lot of the press reports, you know, criticizing us. But quite frankly, I think there needs to be more people taking a look at it instead of trying to be sensational and, you know, give the department some credit because, you know, you're talking about some real heroes that have been working here that have, have laid it on the line because I don't think anybody can really understand the workload and the amount of things that have been accomplished and done during this time. Well, our condolences on the loss of your employees, Commissioner. That is very tragic to hear, which leads me to this, because back in March, we talked about what your department needed in terms of resources, not just for providing your services, but for your own employees. How is that now? Have you all been able to get them everything that they need to do their jobs? Really, what ended up happening was we were we basically had to kind of look inside ourselves to find our immediate help. When we talk about the total number of employees at Department of Labor, which is roughly around a thousand individuals, the vast majority of those people actually do not work in the unemployment department. You know, Mm -hmm. we do a lot of other things here. And also you got support personnel and things like that. 
when you talk about pure unemployment employees, you were really only talking about, you know, a little over 300 individuals. And so we've been able to more than double that amount just by moving individuals from, you know, different grants or different departments and also bringing back, at least for a while, a lot of recent retirees. When I say recent, I mean in the last three years, mm. because anybody that's, you know, has retired from us beyond three years, they, you know, they're going to be starting from scratch when it comes to the systems we're using because of all the changes that we've made in the last, you know, two to three years. We were able to easily double uh, the UI staff in a short amount of time, but we've also reached out and worked with a lot of temp agencies mm-hmm. to help us fill in some of the gaps and some of the support areas and research areas. But still, you know, your biggest issue is, you know, uh, a lot of the, the heavy workload is going to come down to uh, dealing with some of the more complicated cases or a lot of the appeals cases, adjudication, which takes somebody with a fair amount of experience, in a lot of cases, years of experience, Mm -hmm. and you can't hire that, unfortunately. Uh, It's not like you can go hire from other states because other states are experiencing the same issues we are, which also lends to some of the other problems that we've had when it comes to increasing our IT staff, because a lot of things that we've been doing uh, have really put a lot of pressure on our IT department. And so we basically have been competing against the other states around us to attract additional talent, which We've more than doubled that staff Mm -hmm. also during the same amount of time. So, you know, it hasn't been easy. It's been extremely difficult, but I'm proud of the work that we've done. Has it been perfect? No, but Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody should expect it to be perfect when you're talking about the constraints um, and also the pressure uh, and the massive amount of workload that we've been dealing with. Commissioner, any idea? Can you put a number on how much Georgia has paid out? in unemployment benefits, let's say since March and April, has y'all started processing these claims? Oh, yes. It's been well over uh, $15 billion. Basically, uh, you could add up the last 27, 28 years and not get to that number. Uh, And you've done that in a very short amount of time. I mean, you're talking about basically squeezing, you know, 28 years worth of work into about six or seven months. Uh, with one of the lowest, when we started, one of the lowest staffing numbers we'd been at. And people said, well, why was your staffing so low? Well, mainly because of an old and outdated federal funding formula. Uh, We are, uh, the UI department is actually funded based upon how many claims uh, that you normally see. And Georgia was actually, before the pandemic started, uh, was seeing claims numbers uh, that were at their lowest level they'd been at since like the mid-1970s. Uh, and so, I mean, you're talking really low claims number, which actually causes your uh, funding to go down, which means you can't hire additional people and, uh, and get your numbers up where you would like them to be, which is one of the cases that we made back in January. Uh, and our argument was that we need to keep ourselves at a basic floor of staffing in case something bad happened. Matter of fact, that was actually part of my presentation was if we don't add more people and get more funding, if we have an emergency happen, you know, we're going to be way underfunded. And then three months later, that's exactly what happened. $14 billion. Wow. And I remember back then in March, you did anticipate that you would see some record numbers. But there was something else that we talked about, too, because the career centers have been so important. We've had conversations in these career centers. Are they now back open, Commissioner? First of all, let's be clear, they have never been closed, that we just not have, uh, have not allowed uh, public access. Those employees have been working every day. We have not um, 
you know, sent employees home. Like a lot of state government, they, they sent employees home and have told them all to work, um, you know, telework if, if they can. Uh, some of them have just been kind of temporarily laid off. Here, uh, we did not do that, except for, you know, certain cases where you've got, especially because we do have an older workforce here. Um, those individuals, a lot of those we did, uh, you know, obviously those need to telework to keep them safe. Uh, but those individuals have been showing up in those career centers and trying to answer the phones as best as they can. But when you're talking about even once we doubled our UI staff to over 600 from the 300 that we had, when you're talking about an average daily call volume of 60,000 calls a day, mm-hmm. uh, there's that's a physical impossibility to be able to get to all those calls. We can't risk losing more people uh, due to COVID. What changes or adjustments did the department have to implement based on whether there was, quite frankly, complaints or feedback from your own staff? I guess, in other words, what lessons were learned and that now you all have had to shift or alter a particular operation as it relates to getting these claims processed or even investigating you know, people who wanted to appeal if their claim was denied for whatever reason? Well, we've had to... Uh invest in a lot of additional technology uh, we've also you know added a lot of new partners especially when it comes to fighting fraud not only if we obviously we're um, working with a lot more law enforcement agencies that typically we haven't worked with in the past the biggest challenges has come from the additional and new programs that were passed in the cares act uh, especially the pua program which is unemployment for those that are self-employed gig workers individuals that had previously not been paying into the system. Uh, We had no record of those individuals' income or any kind of information on them. And having to build a system from scratch to be able to fit all the requirements that Congress put in that uh, particular system uh, has been a a massive, it's been a mega lift. Uh, And it's been very difficult. And it's been very interesting too, because here lately, and I predicted this back in March and April, now we're starting to get a lot of criticism coming from Congress about how that program has been implemented, which, you know, I would say that it was a bad plan to start with. The, the, the biggest issue had to do with the fact that the people who designed the program had almost no knowledge or a very basic knowledge of how unemployment works. Uh, and so when you take that into consideration and those type of individuals are basically uh, making uh, or putting together our plan it's going to be a bad plan. We could have helped you out and told you some things to do differently on the front end uh, that could have saved everybody a lot of trouble and made this a lot smoother. You told me that last time. Did that not even get better throughout these last nine months? Well, it's one of those kind of things. You can't fix the barn door after the cows get out because it's it's already done. The cows are gone. True. And so, uh, yeah, it's out there. And so, uh, my biggest fear is, is in this next round of changes, they're going to, you know, make, you know, a brand new program and not even, you know, I mean, build on what we've already got. I mean, we've got, you know, tens of thousands of man hours in, in programming in this new system that we're currently using right now. And if they would just go in and tweak it some, um, you know, we can make this work. And I have been, you know, on the phone a lot and in a lot of uh, Zoom conference calls uh, with staff members up there and explain to them the things that were not uh, put together right and things that need to change. Uh, and we'll just have to see if they actually take any of those suggestions and, and, and make it so. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Georgia's Labor Commissioner, Mark Butler. 
Well, let me ask you this. We know there was a backlog. We don't, we've had that conversation. Where are you all now in terms of all those folks from back in March and April and May, those claims, were you all able to catch up with the backlog there? Well, we actually don't have a current backlog when it comes to actually processing claims. Uh, the biggest, uh, if you want to call it a backlog uh, or workload right now, has to do uh, with claims where, let's say that somebody filed for unemployment and they didn't report any income. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and then they appealed us denying that. You know, the appeals process is fairly backed up due to the fact that there's only so many people that can do those. Or uh, in cases where somebody uh, reports that they were laid off, but yet their employer reports back, no, this person was fired for cause. Um, or, their, uh, or the employer reports back, no, this person was not laid off. Uh, they quit reporting to work. They basically abandoned their job. Those cases uh, obviously are going to take longer because then there has to be an investigation of fact finding uh, and both sides uh, get to make their case because uh, unemployment, especially uh, regular unemployment, is one of those deals where the employer is the one that pays the tax on, uh, on, on basically this insurance product, if you want to look at it that way. And so uh, if they disagree with what the reason uh, was put in to ask for unemployment, uh, you know, they do get a say so on it because it's their rate that's affected uh, by how many people get laid off. Uh, and, you know, obviously, you know, uh, we look at both sides and we're a neutral party in that. Uh, and it's just like a, like a miniature court case uh, where you have a, a hearing officer who is kind of like a judge mm-hmm. and you hear evidence from both sides. And then they make a determination based on uh, case law, uh, actual state and federal law, and also uh, state and federal rules. Uh, so that person who does that, you know, has a fair amount of education and uh, usually a lot of experience uh, who is an appeals officer, uh, which that's one of the, the areas where we've uh, concentrated the most on increasing our capacity. Because when um, uh, back in February, before this started, we only had about uh, 25 appeals officers, which was, you know, maybe a little bit low, but somewhat, you know, uh, sufficient for the workload we had back then. But obviously, when you go from only having, say, uh, a few, uh, a few thousand appeals a month to mm-hmm. 50,000 appeals, uh, that's a different workload. Let me ask you this, Commissioner, and I imagine someone listening may want to know the answer to this. If someone did stop going to work, or as you put it, abandon their job due to concerns through their lens, perhaps this employer was not practicing social distancing or implementing measures to protect its employees. So that employee said, you know what, I'm out. Could that work in their favor? Uh, no, that's actually not uh, an allowable reason. Uh, really? The CARES Act did allow, no, um, uh, which is one of the reasons why I have argued that, you know, when Congress came up with the idea of providing, a, you know, financial assistance to people, choosing the method of unemployment insurance was not the proper method. Uh, you take a look at what some other countries have done. Uh, they provided uh, financial assistance through other means. Uh, but when you when you when you say, okay, we're just going to let people apply for unemployment, but we're still want you to apply the rules of unemployment to each one of these cases. Uh, in the case of, of COVID, how that works is, in order for you to get unemployment, other than the normal reasons. Uh, You either have to be somebody that has a documented medical reason that caused you to be a high risk, uh, or you're over the age of 60, 
or uh, you live with somebody uh, of those two previous reasons I just gave you, or there is a lack of childcare. Uh, those are the only reasons that are allowable uh, under uh, uh, under the COVID emergency uh, situation. That we're you in right now. Do you think uh, that's fair? Do you think that's fair? Well, it doesn't really matter kind of what I think. I have to apply what the law says. Well, sure, but I'm curious uh, in your opinion, back. though. I mean, if, if someone well, works... Well, I mean, you, you also got to look at it in a different way, too, uh, because, um, you know, one person's opinion, what they think is safe, and somebody else's is going to be different. So you're, not, you're getting to a subjective reason. You know, remember, uh, you know, it, you've got all these, you know, companies of people saying, you know, we want to shut down. We don't want to go into work, but, you know... Uh, my folks have had to go into work. Uh, they've had to be able to, to perform. Uh, some things we can do from home, but a lot of things we can't. Uh, and so, you know, our folks have been going to work every single day, you know, and we've made, you know, uh, as best we can mm -hmm. accommodations. But even that has been somewhat difficult when you consider um, <laughs> the fact that, you know, when you try to social distance here at the Department of Labor, but then you've also under pressure to add a whole lot more employees and you've only got so much space to have access to the tools that you need. Uh, and also when it comes to training, uh, it's been very difficult. So mm -hmm. um, have you had employees it, you know, it, to it, it, have you had employees, Commissioner, that have either quit or due to concerns about covid? You mentioned those career centers may not be open to the public, but folks were still coming in. Have you experienced that with the department? And yes, I mean, we're, we're no different than anybody else. I mean, we've actually, you know, we, we've had people that have either, you know, maybe taken early retirement. Uh, we have had some people quit and a lot of the, actually most of the quits have not been COVID related. They've been uh, pressure uh, mm -hmm. uh, related uh, due to the fact that, that the strain uh, we've had a lot of IT, you know, you know, uh, you know, we've had several people over there that, have decided that you know that the strain and the pressure and the workload is too much um uh, and so but you know but for, but for the, but that's that's actually been a, a small percentage mm -hmm. uh when you take a look at all I me mean, overall uh most of my employees have uh, have risen uh to the challenge uh, and obviously like i told you we also have had some people that have had to go home temporarily because of sickness mm -hmm. we've actually had a few individuals um you know, uh, or several individuals that have had to be hospitalized and have had actually a long recuperation. And some of those have not come back to work yet. Mm. Um, and so we ask that everybody keep those in your prayers too. So, I mean, like I said, you know, people who want to throw some criticism at me, that's fine. But, you know, mm -hmm. these, these employees, they ought to be looked at quite frankly as heroes because, um, it, you know, I, I could tell you a hundred different stories of, uh, of some of the sacrifices and things that people have done uh, and the type of, uh, you know, the hours they've worked and things mm -hmm. in their own personal tragedies they've had to work through during this time. Um, I mean, it's, I, I've just been blown away, um, yeah. by, by, by the employees that I have here. No, you, you're absolutely right. There've been so many folks who have continued to work, whether they've been healthcare workers or essential workers or first responders. So well, I don't think anyone should dispute that. All the more reason why you you know the importance of employers making sure that if they are going to be open, and when although you can't mandate that, if they are going to be open and require their employees to come in, that they should take those measures in in place to ensure the safety of their employees. Um, yeah, I don't think anybody would disagree with that. You've yeah. got to you've got to take care of your employees, no matter if it's COVID or anything else. Mm -hmm. I mean, I you know uh, being a 
you know, I, I've uh, ran businesses of one type or another all my life. And the one thing is, I mean, your, your company is your employees. Mm -hmm. And if you don't take care of your employees, your employees are not going to take care of your company. Uh, and so anybody that mistreats an employee is, uh, uh, is not doing right by their, yeah. even by what they're trying to do. Let's try to end our conversation on a happy note here. Uh, tell our listeners what areas or industries are hiring and looking for folks. Gosh, right now, um, it seems like it's uh, just about across the board. The only areas where we're not seeing like a like a, a tremendous jump are going to be the ones that are still uh, somewhat affected by, by COVID. And you're talking about hospitality, mm -hmm. uh, food and drinking places. But, you know, a lot of those are currently hiring right now. Uh, you know, we right now we're, we're seeing a record number of job listings on Employee Georgia. Uh, as of the last time I checked, we had have over 160,000 active job listings. And those are not just, you know, one job listing, you know, for one person. A lot of those job listings are for multiple people for that just one job listing. Uh, and, you know, it's, you know, obviously in a lot of uh, retail trade, especially trade, there's also a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, there was a story the other day saying that most of all the hiring right now is temporary mm -hmm. uh, jobs. Mm -hmm. And that's not what we're seeing by the job listings uh, that we're having right now. There's a lot of permanent uh, job listings right now. And one of the neat things that we're seeing, which is really good uh, for our workers here in Georgia is uh, because of the fact that we're, that we do have a shortage of available workers, um, uh, it is pushing um, pay up. Uh, I've talked to a lot of employers uh, around the state uh, on a constant basis, and we're seeing a lot of them pushing their, especially the hourly uh, employers, mm -hmm. are starting to push their hourly wages up. I talked to a guy the other day that I was trying to refer somebody to. Uh, it was a lady who's been working during the entire time of the pandemic, but she actually works for one of those employers who's not been doing a very good job as far as pay. Uh, and she's a real hard worker. And so I called a guy that I know that has a company close by and he normally pays about $15 an hour. But when I called him up, he informed me that they had actually pushed their pay up to about $16.50 to $17 an hour. And the reason was because of COVID. COVID has actually had to make them be more competitive with their pay, uh, which actually we've, actually we've actually experienced that also uh, here at the Department of Labor. Now, what's we've that website that, uh, again for folks so they can? Employ Georgia. Okay. And finally, Commissioner, as you know, nearly every state is experiencing an increase in new COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations. But the concerns are this might lead to more unemployment benefit claims. But if we are experiencing yet another wave, what might this do to the Georgia Department of Labor? Will you all have the resources to handle potentially another increase in unemployment claims? Well, obviously, since we've been through this once, uh, you know, that first wave was the first time that any state had experienced anything like that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of lessons learned when you go through something the very first time. Uh, I think, quite frankly, we're, uh, we're better prepared to handle it in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, mainly, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that a lot of the new things that we've added, a lot of new tools that we've added uh, that we didn't have the first go around uh, because it just didn't have time to implement. Uh, when you're talking about, you know, they basically gave us a couple of weeks to be prepared and there's no way you can get a lot of that stuff online in a couple of weeks. You know, most of the things that we've had to do in, in normal times would have taken you, you know, six to 12 months to put together. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were asked to do it in basically, you know, four weeks. Uh, and so we're obviously, we have a lot more 
capacity now uh, all the way around. And so there's, I think, you know, if we had to go through another one of those, like we had to experience back during uh, the March and April, uh, we're definitely in a better position now than we were then, just because, you know, uh, we're more experienced and know what to look for. Uh, when we obviously you had no, no way of knowing mm-hmm. what you were going to run into back then. Well, another election year for you will be starting soon. You, uh, you plan to, to try to stay in office? You know, that's kind of one of those things. Um, uh, I don't know how other people who are in elected office look at it. You look at it every time just kind of based on your own um, uh, your personal surroundings. Mm-hmm. You know, what is it you want to do? I mean, I'm not one of those kind of people that looks at elected office as one of those things where I just have to do it. It's one of those things, you know, if you, if you run, you got to run again. Um, I'm not saying one way or the other right now, because it's way, I mean, that's, that's two years into the future and, um, uh, just kind of see where everything's at. And, you know, if, if I think that I can still, uh, bring something to the table, if there's still a challenge, uh, then we'll look at it, but, you know, you never know, there may be other things out there that you, that I may want to, to take a look at or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to weigh all those factors, or at least you should weigh all those factors. If you're an elected office. Uh, don't just do it just to be doing it. You need to do it uh, based upon, you know, just like anybody else. Like if you've been in, at a certain job for a long time, mm-hmm. you kind of get to a place where you have to sit back and you reevaluate that. Uh, the difference is here in elective office, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of forced to, to, to do that every so often, like maybe every two years or every four years uh, to take that look back and evaluate where you've been, where you want to go. Um, and actually it's kind of a, um, uh, it's kind of a neat thing. Um, I think everybody ought to do that every so often. Take a look at where you're at uh, in your professional life, because at this stage in my life and at my age, it's not just a, it's not really about money or anything like that anymore. It's about you know, are you still doing things that are giving back to you and giving back to somebody else? Uh, is it still a challenge to you? Is it still you know? Are you still enjoying what you do? Uh, do, you, do you look forward to going into work? And I tell people all the time. Uh, if you hate going into work, you need to find you something else different to do. Uh, quit mm-hmm. looking at the, the money, quit looking at the, you know, the, the prestige or things like that. You've got to look at it from uh, your own mental health and your own, uh, you know, uh, your own perspective. And it's no different in political office. I think everybody should take a look at that. If you still enjoy it, then you should keep doing it. If you don't, then, you know, do something else. Yeah. And sometimes it's not that that simple, but uh, I definitely have heard that before. Georgia Labor well, Commission. I, I think it's that simple. I mean, I've made it. But, you know, for life. some folks, you know what? They may have a family or, you know, I mean, you, you know, sometimes you got to look. Yeah, I, I, I got, I've got one of those, too. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> come on now, Commissioner. Yeah. Yeah, you do. But sometimes, <laughs> look, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Don't. I just hope the world of politics gets a little bit more. Um, I don't know how what the actually the proper term a little bit nicer in the next couple of years. Uh, I'm kind of tired of all the, um, you know the 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 hatred and you know either and my na- way or nastiness. My way type yeah. You know, when I got into politics. Well. Yeah. When I got when I first got into politics, you know, you could disagree with somebody and not have to hate them. You know, uh, and and I I would really like for not just here in Georgia, but everywhere to get back to that you know let's start having discussions and this it's it's not a football game where you have to beat somebody 40 to nothing you know i mean it's uh, you know politics is the art of uh, negotiation and 
right now, I just don't see a lot of that going on. Uh, I think a lot of people would agree with you. Georgia Labor Commissioner Mark Butler, as always, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And again, our condolences on the loss of your employees there due to COVID-19. We're sorry to hear that. Thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. A landscape unlike any other, Georgia's coast is home to vital communities and people from all walks of life fighting to protect it. Help keep Georgia's coast flowing at ourgeorgiacoast.org. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Georgia's top election officials have come under intense scrutiny and pressure to ensure the integrity of our election results. Accusations and criticism ranging from the Trump campaign to Georgia's U.S. Senators Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. Albeit, there has been no evidence which proves any of the claims. Still, that hasn't stopped harassment and even threats of violence towards Georgia's election officials. Now, Gabriel Sterling is a voting system official in the Secretary of State's office. Well, he let loose during a press conference yesterday. This is elections. This is the backbone of democracy. And all of you who have not said a damn word are complicit in this. It's too much. Yes, fight for every legal vote. Go through your due process. Death threats, physical threats, intimidation. It's too much. Meanwhile, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger claims investigations are warranted regarding some specific voter groups. Now, ahead of yesterday's 5th Congressional District runoff, Raffensperger stated these were, quote, credible allegations. As we move to the December 1st election, which is tomorrow, and the January 5th federal runoffs, we have to remain vigilant. That is why I'm announcing an investigation into third-party groups working to register people in other states to vote here in Georgia. We have opened an investigation into a group called America Votes, who is sending absentee ballot applications to people at addresses where they have not lived since 1994. Vote Forward, who attempted to register a dead Alabama voter, a woman, to vote here in Georgia. The New Georgia Project, who sent voter registration applications to New York City, and Operation New Voter Registration Georgia, who is telling college students in Georgia that they can change their residency to Georgia and then change it back after the election. Let me be very clear again. Voting in Georgia when you are not a resident of Georgia is a felony. Well, now we turn to one of these four groups to hear their response to these allegations. Joining me now is Inse Ufant. She's the chief executive officer for the New Georgia Project. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Rose. How long have you been with uh, the New Georgia Project? Since 2014. Um, New Georgia Project was founded by Leader Abrams in 2013. And when um, they switched its focus to large-scale voter registration efforts, um, I came on as the executive director, now CEO. 
And we should note you're talking about uh, Stacey Abrams. I am. For clarity, the new Georgia project, is it part of Fair Fight and all that, or is this totally different? Uh, the new Georgia project is a completely separate uh, entity. It precedes Fair Fight. Um, it precedes Leader Abrams' um, run for governor. So since 2014, um, we've helped register nearly half a million Georgians to vote in all 159 of Georgia's counties. And so that work continues today. Have you all ever, prior to this election season, have you all ever been under investigation or had to deal with any allegations or claims of malicious or suspicious or even straight up voter fraudulent activity as it relates to registering uh, people? I live in Georgia, of course. <laughs> of course. Uh, we have... Uh, since this inception, listen, the first year the New Georgia Project launched uh, its voter registration efforts, we sought to register, we registered 86,419 Georgians to vote. Um, by the voter registration deadline, only 46,000 of the folks that we registered showed up on the voter rolls. So there were 40,000 Georgians that we had registered to vote who were missing. And when we asked the Secretary of State and many of the county boards of elections, um, what happened to those 40,000? folks, they re replied with a retaliatory investigation. So this is par for the course. What um, year was that? 2014. Did you ever and get a response? Was, oh, yeah, we did get a response by about 2016. Um, they had dropped the investigation um, and told us that, it, you know, we that the New Georgia project was not subject to the investigation. And then they turned their attention to the college students and the young canvassers and volunteers um, who worked with us to help register people to vote. Um, and so those are still pending. This is definitely par for the course. What happened to the 40,000 folks that you all and through the Secretary of State's office admit they were dropped or removed from the rolls, or they, did they ever even make the rolls? Yes, they did. About 25,000 of them made it onto the voter rolls up to nine months after the election in which we registered them for. We sued in state court and we lost, unfortunately, and because we were told that there's no law in Georgia that requires the Secretary of State or the counties for that matter to register voters by a particular deadline. So despite the fact that we had registered them by the voter registration deadline, the county and the state didn't have to process their forms and those folks started showing up on the rolls nine months after we registered them. So the issue through your lens, based on what the Secretary of State's office told you, was missing a deadline, nothing else in terms of fraudulent activity or people using fake addresses or not even living, living in Georgia, nothing like that, just that the deadline was missed for, the, for registration. Is that correct? We did not miss the deadline for registration. The issue is that in a rapidly growing Georgia, where millions of people have moved into the state over the past decade, uh, many of them people of color, that the electorate is changing. Mm -hmm. And we have secretaries of state, uh, consecutive now, and some county board of elections officials who 
have not lived up to the, the, ex, the people's expectations um, of what it means to be the chief elections officer for the state of Georgia. That that's what the issue is, is that people are registering to vote and that there are deficiencies in Georgia's elections infrastructure that has been exposed by the scope the scale, the breadth of the voter registration and civic engagement work that groups like the New Georgia Project are doing. Take our listeners through a typical initiative that you all might go through to register someone to vote. Take us through that process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so one, I, I'd like to say that there isn't anything typical about the way that we do voter reg. I will say that it is the sort of the best practices from community organizing, right? Mm-hmm. So we meet people where they are. Uh, you know, we register folks in high schools, uh, partnering with guidance counselors, principals, PTAs, et cetera. Uh, you know, welcome to adulthood. You're 18, now register to vote. Um, we, you know, we leverage a lot of culture, right? So gaming and technology. Um, on National Voter Registration Day, we had a, a live stream uh, called Twitch the Vote. Uh, Twitch is a form, it's like YouTube for mm-hmm. gamers. We registered uh, nearly 9,000 folks uh, in one day uh, based off of our Twitch the Vote live stream. Um, high schools, uh, college campuses, county fairs, uh, music festivals that we have offices in seven cities around the state of Georgia. There's nowhere where we won't go to register people to vote. And when you say register, give them the application, you take their information and you put it, what's yeah, that process so, like? Yeah. So we, uh, the way that we train our canvassers and organizers is that you have twice as many ears as you do mouths. And so often it is the result of a conversation. Um, what we do, we, do what we call issue identification. So mm-hmm. when we're out in public, uh, you know, in front of a grocery store, asking people what are the issues that they care about. Uh, and then we work to connect the act of voting to those issues that they care about in that initial conversation. Um, and so we hand people a blank voter registration form and allow them to fill it out. Um, I, Given the fact how much we leverage and use technology, it might come as a shock to some of your listeners that we register people on blank on paper forms. But again, we also very much are aware of the context uh, and the environment in which we do this work. Mm -hmm. So the ability to scan it into the cloud the ability to have back backup paper copies. Uh, we also get voters to sign um, a consent form that they consent like, that, yes, I want to register with the New Georgia Project today. Um, and so there are a number of redundancies uh, and protections that are built into our program uh, to ensure that one, uh, the people who registered to vote actually get registered. Um, and two, that in the likelihood that we get accused of some sort of fraud Mm -hmm. that we have our receipts do you all ask them to declare a particular party is that an option for them it's not even an option no so you're just getting their information and then you all are able to submit it to the secretary of state's office just want to be clear for our listeners so they understand the process here yeah um we submit it we more than likely submit it to the county that the person is registered to vote. What information or documentation are you all requiring to make sure that they are eligible to vote 
not only in their county or but in their state or you all just don't concern yourselves with that you get their information and then you proceed with what you just told me um, it's the job of the County Board of Elections officials and the job of the Secretary of State uh, to verify people's eligibility. We're community organizers, and so we go out and we ask people if they're eligible to um, vote. And if they say yes, then we're registering them. And again, it is the job of the county mm -hmm. to say whether or not a person is ineligible or not and why. What's the length of time in between when you all submit that to the counties and then if you get information back saying hey we have no record of this person or the address didn't match or whatever how, how typically how long does that take and then what do you all do if you get that information back like that so you, your listeners should first know that there are 159 counties in yes Georgia, which means that there are 159 kings and queens of elections and so they fall all along uh the spectrum in terms of timeline mm -hmm. there are some counties that are on it they're fantastic, right? And that uh, w between the receipt of application um, and a person getting notice that they've made it onto the voter rolls could be, you know, two weeks, mm -hmm. 30 days at the max. And then there are counties that take forever. Um, and so one, I, I think it's important to know that. Two, that information doesn't come back to us directly. If, a, if there are issues with the registrant's um, application, that information goes to the registrant at the address that they use to register to vote. If you're just joining us, the voice you hear is Inse Umfont. She's the chief executive officer of the New Georgia Project. And we're talking about not only the organization's voter registration process, but also Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger says that they are one of four voter registration groups that are being investigated. When you heard Secretary Raffensperger mention your organization just the other day, what did you make of that? I was like, oh, oh, oh they're sad. That's so sad. <laughs> um, I mean, there's literally, there's zero, zero um, evidence uh, that we are registering voters in New York City uh, or anywhere outside of Georgia. When I think about the, how difficult it is to get to that 500,000 mark of registering Georgians, like the idea that we have the interest, the desire, and quite frankly, the resources to register anybody but Georgians is ridiculous. Um, and then my second thought was, this is how disinformation is really harmful. And this is like, and so it, this is how disinformation and misinformation campaigns attack our democracy, attack our elections infrastructure, and make people lose credibility. This is Republican fan fiction. Have you all ever mailed voter application, voter registration applications to anyone out of state? No, we have not. So wh what, as, as our we still haven't been contacted by the Secretary of State or their investigators. So let me start with that. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is nothing more than a press conference. Uh, and again, a, an attempt to traffic in disinformation and spread Republican fan fiction. Um, what we think has happened um, is we have a postcard program uh, where uh, Americans in other states uh, vol can volunteer to request postcards uh, from the New Georgia Project and some of our allies. 
And they take the postcards and they can request them in batches of 10, 25, 50. Mm-hmm. Um, and they will write handwritten notes to Georgians who are not registered to vote. Georgians who have been purged from Georgia's voter rolls or Georgians who are registered and need a reminder that an election is around the corner. And so these volunteers say, hey, sign me up. I live in New Jersey. I live in New York. I live in California. I live in Illinois. Um, and I want to give me a batch of 25 postcards so that I could uh, send them out to Georgia voters. And so what it looks like is that a volunteer in New York requested a batch of postcards. They were delivered improperly uh, to someone, to the wrong recipient. The wrong recipient got them and went to Twitter to say, New Georgia Project sent me a bunch of postcards. They're trying to get me to register to vote. And then the Secretary of State looked at that tweet and launched an investigation into our work. So these were just folks who were, could be, I guess you could call them ambassadors or volunteers wanting to help people, remind people to either register to vote or whatever you have on a postcard. You were not sending any applications to people outside of Georgia. Absolutely not. It's in our name. The name of the organization is the New Georgia Project. Uh, Again, to date, we've helped nearly half a million uh, Georgians of color and young Georgians, new Mm -hmm. Americans, register to vote in all 159 of Georgia's counties. That is a massive undertaking alone. Um, And our goal is to get eligible but unregistered Georgians registered to vote. Have you or anyone from your organization had a conversation with Brad Raffensperger or anyone from the Secretary of State's office ever about allegations? We are in regular communication with the Secretary of State's office um, through ourselves as advocates, but also through our attorneys. Um, We're a voting rights organization and we're a highly effective voting rights organization. And so as a part of uh, you know, our due diligence, as a part of uh, you know, normalizing this kind of work, we have regular communications with the folks in the Secretary of Arts, which also makes the idea that this investigation has been launched and no one from our team has been contacted. It makes it that much more egregious. Uh, and again, makes it, and it, it highlights the fact of how little credibility this little investigation has. What do you make of even right now with allegations? And, and as I mentioned earlier, in every news outlet, every credible news outlet has noted these allegations are baseless and, and have no no findings, no evidence from the Trump campaign to Senators Leffler and, and Purdue that Georgia's elections operations are somehow filled with nefarious or suspicious or fraudulent activity. And this is being levied by Republicans against a Republican Secretary of State. What do you make of all this? Well, I mean, I don't enjoy watching bullying. It's 
kind of cringy. Uh, like it's, it's uncomfortable to watch. I'm not a person that runs to see a fight. And so as I see the attacks on um, our Secretary of State uh, and our elections workers um, by members of their own party, um, it's sad, it's a distraction. Um, and again, I also think that that is why it has led to them trying to pick on bully and intimidate voting rights organizations uh, because you know you need to find they need to find someone else to pick on. And since Secretary of State Raffensperger has made the announcement that he's investigating you all and three other groups, have you had folks calling or inquiring about the integrity of the organization? No, we have not. Um, we have receipts. Uh, we do this and we do it well. Uh, to think that we would be allowed to do this work for six, almost seven years in Georgia under Secretary of State Brian Kemp at the time and now Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Um, and, uh, and, you know, be allowed to continue to do this work again in the deep south if we didn't know what we were doing, um, if we weren't highly effective, if we weren't legitimately expanding the electorate and bringing hundreds of thousands of new voters uh, into our democracy, um, we would have been shut down. Um, so they don't have any credibility. These are partisan attacks. We will continue to register young people to vote, register new Americans to vote, new Georgians to vote. We'll continue to have a bold and aggressive research agenda at the core of our work, figuring out the best ways to have conversations with people about voting. We'll continue to have the dopest, flyest, most fun, livest election day parties, uh, election day activations cool, innovative ways to move people to the polls, uh, and they will deal. Inse Ufant is the chief executive officer of the New Georgia Project, and we've been talking about Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's. They are one of four organizations being investigated. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. 
I'm Jeff Schinnerbarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little differently. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.